Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. Like Penny said, uh, we are uh, in a series as we're, as we're in this 21-day fast called Like a Flood. Uh, and, and today what I really want to do uh, is I want to talk about what does it look like to prepare for a flood uh, in, in a good way, right? I think we probably know what does it look like to prepare for like a, a bad flood, right? Anyone ever had like uh, a flood? Maybe you've had like a broken water main in your house or like a flood uh, break out where you're camping. Anyone ever camped in the wrong spot? Anyone ever done that and you've had a, a flood come through? I did that once in uh, the lovely Hawke's Bay and I remember I was like six years old so I didn't set up where it was but I remember sitting on the, our chili bin Chili bins. Do we all call them chili bins? We got consensus. Atlanta, you're not allowed to. This is. I'm talking to the New Zealanders in the room. All right. Do we all call them chili bins? Yeah. Is that, okay. That's good. No. Is it eskies? Is that what you? Eskies. Yeah. No. I'm not saying we do that, right, guys? I don't want to. I'm getting. I'm getting off offside far too early. Uh, but I remember sitting on our on our chili bin and watching uh, my books float by in the water and being like, I don't think this is meant to be happening in a in a tent, right? So so there's one way to prepare for a, fl- a flood that you don't want. But if we're having a flood of something that we do want, how do we prepare? Because this, this passage, this idea of like a flood is from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 5. And, and in it, uh, David is giving an account of he goes and he attacks his, his enemies, and it's not really a battle that he can win on his own. David's good at picking those types of fights. Uh, and, and, and he goes, but God breaks through for him, and he says, I saw God break through like a flood. And that's where we've got this, this idea from, this passage, because in our lives, we want to see God break through like a flood. We want to see God move like a flood. We want to, come, we want to see God come and do things in our lives that, that we can't do on our own, that we can't move in our own strength, that we can't correct, that a flood in, in one mighty move can, can move and can correct and, and can bring life, right? And, and so as we've been, as we look at this idea of, of fasting for God to break through, for God to move like a flood, how do we prepare for that flood? If you're taking notes today, I've, I've, I've titled this message, Dig a Ditch, which is not an insult. I don't know if, if anyone's feeling personally insulted by being told to go dig a ditch. I feel like there's maybe more of an insult that my nana would be like, and Jonathan, don't tell people to say that. That's rude, right? But I Googled it because I don't want to accidentally, you never know these days, right? What might be offensive, what might not. So I Googled my titles because I'm just a little bit paranoid like that. And apparently it's an insult. So uh, dig a ditch, but I don't mean it in a bad way. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Second Kings chapter 3. We're going to read verses 16 to 18. And just for your enjoyment today, I'm going to read from the New King James Version. So no one is allowed to laugh when I can't say thus properly because my tongue's just, I'm not, not Christian enough to always be reading the New King James, and so I have not developed the dexterity of my tongue to say thus without tripping over myself. Uh, it says this, And he, that's Elisha, said, Thus says the Lord. Thus says, that's, anyway. Make this valley full of ditches. For, thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet the valley shall be filled with water, so that you your cattle and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. When you bow your heads with me and, uh, and let's pray. God, we thank you for, for these moments as we come together. We thank you for, for the privilege that it is to be able to gather together. 
God, I pray in these, in these next coming minutes as we, as we look at your word, as we, as we lean in, God, we thank you that you're always speaking. I pray that today as I speak, it wouldn't be me, it wouldn't be my ideas, but that your voice would go out, that your spirit would move, that you would meet us where we are and you would help us to move more towards where you, where you want us to be, that, that you would be, you'd be magnified today, that we would be reminded of, of your beauty and your grace, that we would be drawn closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think on the, on the surface of it, this, this passage here in 2 Kings chapter 3, it's an interesting passage, right? I haven't unpacked any of the context for you yet, but it's an interesting kind of bit in the Bible where a prophet tells uh, some people to dig some ditches and they're going to be filled with water. You're like, okay, something interesting must be, must be going on here. What does it have to do with fasting? If you're asking that question, that would be a fair question to ask at this point in the sermon. If you're still asking that in like 20 or 30 minutes time, uh, maybe I haven't done my job so well. Because here's what's happening. We've picked the story up at kind of the, the end or the midpoint of the story, but it, it starts with a march to war. The story starts with three kings. We have Joram of, of Israel, we have Jehoshaphat of Judah, and we have the king of, of Edom, and they're, they're usually not really friends, but they've formed an uneasy alliance to march to war against another nation called Moab, against the, the Moabites. And, and the reason that, that they've gone through Edom, right, Edom, usually Judah and Israel will work together. They were one nation, they're then a divided kingdom. They're kind of a tenuous, sometimes friends, sometimes enemies, but kind of, they're kind of frenemies, if you know what I mean, right? We all remember that from high school. Not a great thing to be, but we, we've moved on. Hopefully you don't have any frenemies in your life anymore. The nation of Israel didn't move on. The north and the south stayed frenemies for a while. Uh, so they're frenemies, and, and they need the help of the nation of Edom. The reason they need the help of the nation of Edom is they've got this great plan to kind of go in a sneak attack on the Moabites. And the way they're going to do this sneak attack is by going through the desert that, that the nation of Edom kind of owns. And so they need the king of Edom on board. So they come through the nation of Edom, they get the king of Edom on board, and they pick up his army as well. So you've got three armies marching to war in this kind of sneak attack. But what happens is as they're marching to war, someone, someone misplans something. I, I don't know what happens. I don't know if they, they put the GPS route in wrong. I don't know if maybe they used Apple Maps rather than Google Maps, right? We all know what that's like. You're like, it says there meant to be a road here. There's no road there. You're like, thanks, Apple Maps. You really helped me out a bunch, right? Something happens, and they end up in the wrong place. Not only do they end up in the wrong place, they end up in the wrong place without any water, so there they are, they're stuck in their tracks because they've got an army. In fact, they've got three. They're well supplied on the army front, but they don't have any supplies to water their army. And so before they can even get to the battlefield, they're about to be defeated. Before they can even get to where they're meant to be going, they're about to end up dead, stuck in the middle of the desert. And so they turn to Elisha, who, as, as prophets happen to kind of be, just happens to be there. It's a handy sort of thing. They turn to Elisha, hadn't really asked him, hey, should we go to war against the Moabites or anything like that? That's another sermon for another day. Uh, but they turn to Elisha and they're like, what should we do? And this is Elisha's response. You need to dig ditches. In fact, not just one ditch, make this valley full of ditches because water is coming. Water that you won't see or hear, but it's coming and it's coming like a flood. So this morning, I think that we can learn three things from these stranded kings and the armies. The first thing I think we can learn is what we need. We can learn what we can do. And finally, we can learn what we can't do. Right? The first thing that we learn is what we need. And really, hopefully, this is just a reminder for us. Here these kings are. They're in a position of dependence. They're dying of thirst. 
in life, I think each and every one of us are dying of thirst, whether we know it or not. We're dying for thirst for something beyond the here and now, something that gives meaning that, that lasts, something that, that provides satisfaction that's significant, not just a fleeting moment to moment, not just putting our hopes in something and, and finding their dash. I think so often in life we look for meaning in all the wrong places, right? We look for it in, in relationships or, or work or success or significance, all potentially good things that we make idols. An idol is simply often a good thing that we put in the wrong place, that we expect too much of. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Idols so often begin by offering us everything and asking nothing, but ultimately they give us nothing and ask everything. Idols deplete us. Idols are like a a mirage in the desert. We're there and we're thirsty. We're aware of our thirst and we think we see something in the distance. We think we see, man, that that looks like a spring of water in the desert. That's going to fill my needs. And we expend all our energy running to it only to arrive and to realize it was never really there. It was an illusion. It's just more sand and we're just thirstier than we ever were before. We don't need a mirage. We need an oasis. right? We all need Jesus. Spurgeon says, without the Spirit of God, if we go in the next Next slide. Without the Spirit of God, we are like a ship stranded on the beach. When the tide has receded, there is no moving her until the flood shall once again lift her from the sands. I think so often in life we end up finding that we're beached, but realizing all too late that we're beached. Not realizing as the tide slowly goes out that we're becoming in a, in a dangerous position, but all of a sudden, once we find ourselves in a place of, man, this is not where I wanted to be, realizing, hey, the tide has gone out and I'm stuck. And the only way to solve that is to turn to the only one, the only person that exists that can bring us meaning, which is God. We all need water. We all need some sort of satisfaction that goes beyond the fleeting moments of day-to-day life. We need to not live beached. We need water individually, but we also need water corporately, don't we? We don't want this just to be some, some nice lights and some beautiful music and hopefully some helpful kind of semi-entertaining self-help talk. It's not what this is about. If that's what this is about, then we've missed the point. We so often refer to this passage in Exodus 33 uh, verse 15 where Moses said, God, we don't want to go if you don't come with us. God, if you don't personally come with us, we don't want to go without you. We don't want to do life personally without God. And we definitely don't want to do this, which is meant to be all about God without God. But in both cases, the, the thing is, is that we can. We can, we can kind of, oh, no, I go to church, and, you know, like I, I, do the, I tick the boxes and, and go through the religious exercises, but not actually invite God into our life, not actually have living water. We, we can be a church and say all the right things and do all the right things, but not actually have God moving in a real and a powerful way. But only God brings transformation. Only God brings meaning. Only God brings peace. Only God brings, brings joy. We're about Jesus. We're about pointing ourselves to Jesus again and again and again because he's the only answer. The only answer is ever going to be Jesus. So what do we need? Simply, we, we need water. We live in a world that is parched. We need him personally and we need him corporately. Otherwise, we're like the armies stranded, lifeless in a desert. So if we need water, what, what can we do? Right, that, that's the second point. I already told you them at the, at the front. You, you, know, you know what's coming, no surprises. There is actually, there's three secret sub points in this point, just a heads up, right? Because I had to be tricky with it. But we're stuck in the desert. What can the armies do? They're in need of, of water. And so like we already know, Elisha's response is he tells them to 
dig a ditch. That's right. You can say that with more gusto. It's all right. I won't be offended. He tells them to. That's right, right? And not just a ditch, but to fill the valley of ditches because, because something's coming and they need to be ready to catch it. In fact, the story continues, and, and the next morning they give a grain offering to God. And, and just as they've given the grain offering, there's not a, a sight, there's not a sound of water, but all of a sudden the valley is filled in what historians think was a flash flood. All of a sudden, water comes moving into the valley at a rapid pace. The valley is filled with water, and just as quickly as the valley is filled with water, the water that has filled the valley moves through the valley and, and is gone. The water is there, and then it is gone, except for the water in the ditches, right? God moves miraculously. God moves by power, and it could have all been lost except they dug ditches. They prepared to receive what he was doing. You know, I I know that so often in my life, I have a tendency for, for God to move. I'll be in one of these sorts of moments where I'll pray for breakthrough, which is a great thing to pray for. Do you know what I don't like to pray for? Is breakthrough in an area in which I've already had breakthrough. Do you know what I so often pray for? Breakthrough in an area in which I've already had breakthrough. Right, like, oh God, I really need you to move in this area of my life. And, and maybe, it's a, maybe it's a fasting sort of thing. Maybe it's we go into a, a, a conference sort of environment. We feel like God moves amazingly. We're like, man, I feel so close to you. I feel like you're, you're real, God. I feel like you're moving. I feel your hand on my life. And then maybe a couple of weeks or a couple of months, a couple of years, if you're you know, a little bit of a better Christian. Not that there's such a thing as a good Christian, really, right? It's by grace, but let's not get into that today. You pray a prayer and you're like, I feel like I got deja vu. I feel like I've, I feel like I've prayed for breakthrough in this area before. I feel like I've, I've been in this place before because I think so often we pray and God comes and he moves like a flood, but we don't dig any ditches and so he moves and we live off the, the residual benefits of him moving, but we don't implement any practices in our life that mean that we can go to another level. We can pray for new breakthrough in new areas. We're stuck just in the same cycle again and again and again. See, it's just like, you know, we just came off of Heart Week. One of the things we talked about in Heart Week is Heart Week is a week in which we intentionally love our city. And it's a beautiful thing. But we want to be really clear, it is not the only week in which we love our city. It is a week of intentionally loving our city, but it's something in which we turn everything up to 11 to remind ourselves about what we should be doing every day, every week, as we are God's hands and feet to the city. Same with, with this fast, right? With fasting, an intentional period of prayer and fasting, which maybe we, we, we pray and we fast in a different way, in a, in, in a bigger way. We turn it up to 11, but it's not the only time in which we pray and we fast. What would happen if we treated this as, as spiritual boot camp? Reminding ourselves that the, the purpose of boot camp, again, I've never actually been to a boot camp, so this is uh, just me reading uh, stuff on the internet and making things up, but I'm pretty sure it's right. Uh, the purpose of boot camp is to get you to a position from which you can maintain. Yeah, you do boot camp to prepare for, for the army or to prepare for, for the police force or to prepare for summer, right? Summer body. We all know. Hashtag suns out, guns out, right? It's, it's, it's happening. Right? Don't get ready, stay ready, like me. I'm ready for summer. I don't have to go to boot camp. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, but, but that so often happens. It, it's boot camp, and we, we get ready, and, and you know, you see it. There's those videos on the internet of those police officers. At some stage in their career, they went through a boot camp. They got ready. They were physically fit and able. They could run a mile. They could climb the fence. But then they got into the force, and, and, and they stopped training, and they consumed maybe a little bit more 
Maybe they put on a desk job. Maybe they didn't maintain. And, and all of a sudden, they're in a situation in which they have to, to go after a perpetrator, in which they have to do something, apprehend someone. They have to climb a fence after the robber or whatever it might be. And, and they've got to climb the fence. And, and in their mind, they're still the sprightly young person that they were when they passed boot camp. And they go up the fence. And they don't get over the, the fence. And you're stuck on the fence. And then that video of them being stuck on the fence gets put on the internet and millions and millions and millions of people see them stuck on the fence, which is unfortunate for them, right? We're not about bullying people or shaming them, but I think so often the same thing can happen to us spiritually. We prepare, we go into boot camp, we're like, yeah, God, I feel so close to you, but we don't maintain. And so then when we find that we need to use some of the spiritual authority that we've developed or rely on the spiritual disciplines that we put in place, we haven't continued them and so they've, they've just kind of deteriorated. See, I think we need to dig a ditch in our life, and we need to do it for three reasons. These are my sneaky sub-points. Number one, we need to dig to receive in your life. I really believe that God is moving powerfully in this season for us as a church corporately, that there is an anointing in this room as people come together corporately, fasting and praying, that there is a flood that is moving. But my, my encouragement to you is don't be in a valley without a ditch. Don't be in church seeing God move, hearing testimonies of God moving in other people's lives, feeling good on a Sunday without any practices that carry it into the rest of your week. Join us, right? We're digging a ditch. Get a spade. It's not too late. It's never too late. Get a prayer calendar, sign up on the website and start fasting with us because God is coming like a flood. Put yourself in a position to receive. The second reason that we should dig a ditch is dig to keep what comes. Right, I've alluded to this already. We don't, we don't want just to feel close to God in the month of November and then have the rest of the year languish in comparison. Establish practices now that in some way, shape, or form you'll continue. Right, we're, we're fasting for breakthrough like a flood, but I'd also to encourage you as you're fasting for breakthrough to think, how can I continue this practice of fasting? Penny mentioned last week that, that a while ago I spoke about how fasting has, has been an intentional, continual practice of the church for for hundreds of years. In, in, the, in the 1700s, the early church fasted as a core practice of following Jesus. They fasted twice a week, most Christians, on Wednesdays and on Fridays. Not because those days were special. In fact, theologians think it's mainly because Jewish people fasted on, I think it was Tuesdays and Thursdays, and they were like, we're not doing the same days as them, right? We're different. Uh, so it's not about the days, but it's about the act of of fasting. Lent was originally a 40-day Ramadan-style fast in which Christians went without food until, until their evening meal. They would only eat before the, the sun came up and after the sun went down as an intentional pursuit of God. And fasting is not about earning God's favor. It's not about convincing God to do anything. It's not a, a religious practice in that way that we can think of religion as an empty exercise, but it's an intentional honoring of our body that this is not just a meat machine, that this is not just, just something that's here and now and, and, and dirty and fallible and we're going to throw it away when we die and go to heaven. We believe that God made us and God made us good and so we're honoring God with our bodies. We're bringing our bodies into alignment with what our hearts and our spirits believe. And we're saying, God, I'm fasting as a way of, of placing my prayers in my bodies, of submitting my body to you. God, you made me and you made me good. You, I'm not worthless and of no consequence. I honor you with my body. And we believe as we honor God with our body in small things, like abstaining from food, we develop the discipline to honor God in bigger ways. You know, for me personally, I remember during the fast last year, I did a Ramadan-style fast. It wasn't quite Ramadan-style because I didn't fast from sun, sunrise to sunset because it's summer, right? And the sun goes down really late. 
and I'm just, I'm just not that spiritual, right? It's just, it's just not that much holiness in this body. I'm a broken man. Uh, and, and so I would just fast until dinner, at which point uh, I would be at the table with the kids and they'd be eating and I would steal their food off their plates, right? Which is, again, not also great parenting, but it's all right. I'm a work in progress, guys. Uh, and, and so, but I remember doing that and at the end of the fast, the fast itself was great, but at the end of the fast, I felt God say, hey, I want you to keep doing this. Keep this discipline in some way, shape, or form. And so for the rest of the year, I've been fasting two or three days a week. And it's been probably one of the most transformational things I've done in my walk following after Jesus. And creating space for God and intentionally disciplining myself and saying, I'm not going with the cultural tendency to worship my own impulses and desires. God, I'm honoring you with my body. It's transformed something in my life. And see, I think as we're fasting together, what can we take from this distinct period into everyday life? As you're joining us in this fast, and I pray that you would, what can you take from from this distinct period of of fasting and this kind of turned up to an 11 way in which we can maintain in our continual pursuit of Jesus? The the third reason that I think that we should dig is, is dig for others. You know, there's, there's an interesting story in Matthew chapter 17, verse 21. Uh, the disciples get sent out by Jesus to, to go and pray for people, to cast out demons in his name. And Jesus says, hey, whatever I can do, you're going to be able to do. Go and do it. It's going to be amazing. So they go out. They're excited. They're psyched, as you would be, right, if Jesus is like, hey, go do some pretty awesome stuff. So they go out. They're doing it. It's going well. They're seeing people healed. But they come across a boy who's possessed, and, and the, the demon won't come out. And so they're really confused. They're like, oh, man, this is like... I feel a bit stink because we're like, hey, you're possessed. Don't worry. We got this. We prayed for you. Still possessed. Oh, a bit, bit awkward. What do we do now? Right? They like, tried pushing him over. The kid wouldn't fall. I don't know. And so they take him back to Jesus. And, and, and Jesus prays for him and, and the boy is freed, which is amazing. But then the disciples are confused. They're like, Jesus, we thought that we could do what you could do. Like, we know you're the son of God and stuff, but it's just a bit misleading. Like, what's going on? Kind of set us up here. It's a bit stink. We thought we were mates. And Jesus says to them, this kind doesn't respond except in prayer and fasting. Which I think is interesting, because Jesus doesn't encounter the boy and be like, oh, snap, it's a bit harder. Hey, wait here for a week. I'm just going to go have a quick uh, week of prayer and fasting, then I'll come back and I'll send out the demon, right? And again, he's Jesus, so he's got a bit of an advantage, home field advantage when it comes to praying for people. Let's just acknowledge that. But, but Jesus, we know, the Bible tells us, consistently went away for time of, of solitude, prayer, and fasting with God. The Son of God, fully God, fully man, still found time, still felt it was important to create space to pray and to fast. And I wonder if in doing so, he wasn't modeling what it would look like to have the spiritual authority that when we come into moments like that, when we come into moments in which we need God to move, in which we need to be in touch with what God is doing, we don't need to say, hey, oh man, that's talking to your workmate, that's a really intense, really scary thing. Just let me go away for a week and build up some faith and then I'll come back and pray for you. If we need to do that, that's fine. But how much better would it be to, in the moment, be like, no, prayer and fasting is an intentional uh, part of my life. I I have a rhythm here that's built something in me that I know that God can. I've built up the faith that God will. Can I pray for you? That we would have the spiritual authority for others that when they need God to move, we're ready. We're not in the way. Right, that we could build that sort of spiritual authority. Let's dig now to establish a readiness that we'll need later. But not just even in in authority, not just spiritually. What does this look like practically? 
One of the things that, that I've been fasting and, and praying for is that God would move like a flood in people coming to faith in this church. That we would be a church that sees people come to salvation, that, that learns that there is hope, that there is love, that God is for them. But as I fast for that, I, I wonder, are we ready? Right? Like if you're praying for a family member to come to, to know Jesus and that family member's got a bunch of kids and, and that family, you're praying that they come to church, are we ready to receive them in our kids program? Right? Are we ready or, or maybe something that you can do practically to prepare in faith for what we're believing for is you need to start serving in kids because you're like, hey, when my family comes to church, we're going to need more people serving in kids because my family's going to be here. Maybe it's your workmate. You're like, man, I can't wait till my workmate comes to church. They're going to be so welcomed. They're going to be so loved. They're going to be so well hosted. Maybe something that you can do in faith is, is to join the hosting team so that when they walk in those doors, you're ready for them. You're welcoming them. You've established something practically. We've dug some, some ditches. Look, I'm almost done just as the, the band joins me on stage. What we need is we need God. We need water. We need living water. We can't do this on our own. We don't need to pursue a mirage. We need an oasis in the desert. What we can do is we can dig some ditches. We can prepare ourselves spiritually. We can put in practice some things that mean we receive when God moves and also some things that mean that we're not just relying on the, the, the big moments in which God moves, but we're intentionally, continually seeking Him. But what we can't do is we don't control the water. We, we don't make it come. And I think it's, 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 it's so freeing to remember that, that as we dig ditches, the ditches don't make God move, right? God's not a genie. This is not formulaic. Like Penny said last week, fasting prepares us for an answer to prayer. It's not about earning an answer to prayer. We don't make God do anything. And when God does move, He always moves how He wants to move. It's interesting, you know, uh, when Elisha needs rain, that's the story you're reading in 2 Kings, it comes without a sound or sight of clouds, but in a sudden flood. But when Elijah, who was before Elisha, needed rain, there was a small cloud and the sound of rain before they saw rain. In, in both cases, water came, but in very different ways. See, I wonder if sometimes when we look for God to move, we look for Him to move like He did last time. We miss what He's doing because it doesn't look like how we'd expect. Let's not be looking for the sound of rain and, and miss the flash flood or, or ignore the sound of rain because last time there wasn't one. God is always doing a, a new thing. And, and can we trust that as we do what we can, He does what we can't? We're going to finish today by, by taking communion. In fact, I'll get the, the host to distribute the, the communion emblems now. It would be amazing. And, and what I love about this story in 2 Kings chapter 3 is that God doesn't just provide water, right? To recap, the armies are stuck in the desert because they're on their way to attack the Moabites who are a threat to the nations. They're on their way to wage war against these, these enemies. And on their way, they get stuck in a valley without any water, defeated before they even reach the battlefield. They're marching to defeat, to, to attack the Moabites. And what happens is the Moabites hear that they're on their way and, and they rally to repel them. The Moabites have a well able to be defended city and, and, and they're fairly confident of their chances. But they come out to see, hey, where is this army coming from? What's going on? And they look out and they see the valley. And they see the valley after God has moved and it's been filled with ditches full of water. But historians think that, that the valley is surrounded by red sandstone cliffs. And, and those cliffs, they're, they're reflected in the pools of water. And, and so when the Moabites look at the valley, they don't think that the valley is full of water. They think the valley is full of blood. 
See, what they think has happened is they know that there's a tenuous alliance between these three kings and they think something went wrong, right? Someone looked at someone the wrong way. Something happened and they, they started fighting each other. The armies descended into chaos. They've, they've fought amongst themselves. They've, they've slain themselves. The armies are defeated and they think to themselves, what an easy opportunity to, to ride in and to wipe them out. And so the Moabites, they form up, but not in like a strategic, sound, military sort of way, just kind of like a ragtag, hey, let's ride in, and it's going to be an easy wee battle, picking off the stragglers and, and defeating our enemies. And so they, they ride in into this valley that they think is full of blood, but they arrive and they find the three armies well rested, not in a valley of blood, but a valley of water. And, and the Moabites effectively ride in and they hand themselves over. They leave their position of strength and they deliver themselves into the, the hands of the three armies. So what I think is amazing is, is not only does God deliver water, their immediate need, He meets their bigger problem. They come to God, they come to Elisha and they say, hey, we're, we're in, in dire need of water. We are thirsty. And God says, I'm not just gonna give you water to drink. I'm gonna defeat the very reason that you're in this valley in the first place. I think so often in these sort of seasons and these, and these moments of fasting and, and praying for breakthrough, we bring God a symptom and that's great. We need God's help in that moment, but we bring God a symptom and God says, I'll, I'll work with you on the symptom, but I need you to understand that I really wanna deal with the root. As we take communion today, it's my prayer that it would provide us with perspective, that we would view everything else in light in the shadow of the cross. It would be reminded that God has already done for us more than we could ever imagine that, and that that would build faith in us for what's next. That as we fast and as we pray, would we be aware that the greatest thing that God could ever do, He's already done. And that everything else, we can have faith in the light of that. And as you bow your heads, as you close your eyes. In a moment, the, the band's gonna lead us in a song of worship. And it's my prayer that as you take this bread, that you would be reminded that His body sustains you. That as you take this cup, you would be reminded that you are washed clean, that you are cleansed by His blood. That you would be reminded today that Jesus died for us because of His love for us, that God is not distant or mad, but He is close and He is loving and He is kind, that He is for you, and that our pursuit of Him would reflect that. Would you stand to your feet? Come on, as the band sings, I want to invite you to, to take the bread, to take the cup in your own time, to reflect on what God has done, and to allow that to build faith in you for what you're believing God will do. Come on, let's sing this together, church. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.